0: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff actionable marketing podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In this episode, you learn how to stop marketing with your ego and instead start marketing for effectiveness. My guest today owns the domain name marketingbs.com, so we have a few things in common. He also sends a newsletter every Tuesday morning around this topic on marketingbs.com. You can find it there. My guest has a rather big CV. He's been the Chief Marketing Officer for General Assembly. He's been the CMO of a place for Mom, and actually steered the company from the brink of collapse to generating more than 30% year-over-year growth, and also been the VP of Marketing at Expedia, uh, which you might have heard of. So, super happy to have you, Edward Nevremont, on board. Welcome. Great.
1: Here.
0: your last name sounds really french so for once it wasn't difficult for me to to pronounce it
1: <laughs> That's most people have a lot of problems with it and, uh, i'm glad you, it was actually belgian not french but uh you know I'm sure that, you guys get along your cousins uh, yeah french the,
0: the belgium are basically, <laughs> basically french they all know this so i really love your stance on marketing and i think it takes some guts to to do it so first of all well done on taking the risk to on registering such a domain name marketingbs.com and going for it so why do you think that most of what people do in marketing is complete bullshit?
1: Yeah, I think it's worth clarifying at the beginning that a lot of people see marketing BS and they say, oh, you think that marketing is BS. And I didn't register marketingisbs.com, just marketingbs.com. And there's, there, there is a difference. I think I think marketing is extremely valuable. I think being able to communicate what your product is to people and having them Aware of it is one of the most important things in the business. So the, the famous saying, build a better mousetrap and they will be the path to your door. I think that is BS. That does not happen. You can build a great bit product and no one will ever find out about you unless you put some effort into marketing it. So marketing is really, really important. I think we've been distracted by bad marketing for a variety of reasons that I'm happy to talk about today. And, and that's what I talk about in my newsletters. what I talk about in my book. It's what I, what I built my career on, which is uh, stop doing the BS and start doing what actually works. So what's the BS for you? The BS is usually shiny objects. Um, It's often we are so focused on wanting to have some sort of answer. And when shiny objects are put in front of us, we we chase them. And oftentimes those shiny objects are not effective. That those shiny objects distract us from doing a bunch of simple stuff, which doesn't sound as exciting or as sexy, but is often really, really important. I'll I'll give an example. I was meeting with a a Fortune 500 CMO, uh, CMO. he was talking to me, asking my advice on how does he integrate his technology stacks between his, his marketing funnel and his sales funnel. So he had like some sort of Salesforce CRM system, and he had uh, uh, all his marketing and Google Analytics and so on. And he wanted to know, how do I find out when one of the customers that are talking to my salespeople, if they visit the website on a certain page, I want to communicate that, that they visit that page to my sales team so they can like, uh, personalize their, their sales story. And I said, hey, that that's all sounds fine and good, but take, take a step back a second. When your marketing team get, generates a lead and sends this to your salespeople, how long does it take your salesperson to call that lead back? And he just kind of looked at me, and he's like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, and I'm like, well, before we talk about integrating marketing and sales tech stacks, why don't we start by calling your customers back when they want to talk to you? And, and, and I see this thing over and over again where, cust- where, where, where companies are focused on personalization and big data and AI and they aren't calling their customers. They aren't responding to customer service requests. And so my my take is stop doing all that BS stuff and start doing the effective stuff. And sometimes by the way, doing the effective stuff can be really hard, but it's an execution hard not a conceptual hard.
0: Interesting. So execution hard would be like, it's actually simple to understand but it takes time and it's tough to do like day to day, answering customer service calls like on time, every time, answering emails on time, every time. But then what is conceptually hard to grasp could be like AI, like it's a very complex topic, right? Like you, you throw technology at a problem, it's a vast thing, it's difficult to understand, but then you don't even know where to start executing it. So for you, BS is really about this shiny object, right? Like the personalization, as you mentioned, you also mentioned loyalty programs, like you mentioned this the AI stuff, and I completely agree with you. So... What's baffling to me, well, like, what's really surprising to me, is that you talk, to, like, you talk to the CMO of Fortune 500, I assume very smart person. Most of the marketers out there uh, and CEOs out there are like, very capable pe- people. Why do you feel they focus on this BS and this shiny object instead of focusing on what makes sense for the business to actually focus uh, on, as you say, marketing effectiveness?
1: That's a great question, especially, I'm a big believer in efficient markets, that like there, there aren't many $20 bills sitting on the ground waiting to get picked up. And so if doing non-BS marketing is more effective than doing BS marketing, then why hasn't everyone moved to non-BS marketing and BS marketing just gone the way of the dodo? And I think the answer is, there's an incentive problem. So when I was a CMO, I would get calls from headhunters on a regular basis Looking, for, like, looking to hire me to be other C, to be CMOs at other companies. And the two big questions they always ask me were not how effective is your marketing? What was your marketing ROI? They wanted to know how big my marketing budget was and how big my team was. And so if you're a marketer CMO and you want to get your next big job, my recommendation for you is find a way to get a really big team and a really big budget. And that's how you're going to get your next bigger job. One way to get a bigger team and a bigger budget is to be more effective in marketing. But it's not the only way. And I would argue it's not even the most effective way. And so once you get to a certain scale in your, in your size of a business, it's really hard to measure effectiveness. And it's easy to BS effectiveness. A great example of that is retargeting. Everybody loves retargeting. Vendors love retargeting. They do last-touch attribution on retargeting. Someone comes to your website, and then you cookie them. You follow them around the web with your ads. Some of those people click on those ads, come back to your website, and buy. And you give the retargeting the credit for that purchase. Well, if someone's already on your website, some percentage of people on your website are going to come back and buy from you in the future. When you stick retargeting ads next to them, all you've done is provide a navigational tool and you aren't actually getting incremental sales. Now, some of those sales are incremental. And I've run tests against this, where you do retargeting where half the people see your retargeting ads and half the people you just show red cross ads. And you measure what the actual lift was. Uh, And the actual lift ends up being small. There is a real lift, but it's like 10% of the impact you think you're having. And so, but but if all you care about is growing your marketing budget and all you care about is making it look like you're effective, if you're an agency, you say, hey, look at this, your ROI on your retargeting is 1,000%. And then the marketing person says, oh, I can spend a lot of money on that. And I can go to my CFO and say, it's 1,000%. And the CFO says, well, why isn't our business growing? And they're like, oh, it must be someone else's problem, not marketing. Look at this. My marketing attribution says what I'm, it's re- extremely effective, so there must be some problem in sales or product or somewhere else. And a lot of marketing is like that. It's 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 hard to measure. And the people doing the measuring, the people doing the the coaches and the referees are the same person. And it's easy to kind of gloss over what's actually working and what isn't, especially when it gets complicated.
0: I love the fact you're talking about retargeting. I, in fact, that's one of the lessons I've learned from uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, who is the co-founder of Basecamp. And one of the first episodes of this podcast, more than two years ago, he, he talked about this bullshit of retargeting. And I like the fact that you're mentioning this. Massive businesses are being built on this technology, right? So to explain it simply to people who might not know what it is, it's simply a way to show ads to people who've shown interest to you in the past. They might have visited your page or your homepage, and you basically show them an ad that basically tell them to come back. And as you said, this technology works well, but it does not necessarily create new incremental customers. And that's because if you are interested in a product, you're going to buy from from them anyway. And if you saw an ad, you might click on it, but it's not going to make you buy necessarily from them. And you mentioned this test you've done, which is a 10% lift. Nothing compared to, to the biggest ROI those, those companies tend to talk about in terms of retargeting. So that's a great example. Do you have any other example of this technology or a solution or something that marketers tend to really focus on that, that seem to work, but actually doesn't really bring a lot of effectiveness?
1: Yeah, so, so hey, there's lots of things that are, like these complicated things that I, that I harp on, sometimes they work, but they work on a small amount on the margin some of the time. And it's not that you should never do retargeting or you should never do personalization or you should never do loyalty programs, all of which I think are generally BS. It's that you should not start there. You need to start on a bunch of simple stuff first. And by the time you get to personalization, you better be friggin' good at all the basics because personalization is not going to help you very much. It'll help you if you do it really, really well. It'll help you a little tiny bit, but it's not going to blow away your business. Uh, Like Personalization is a great example. I look at um, Amazon. Amazon is one of the best personalization companies in the world because they have so much data on you purchased across so many categories and they have, I live here in Seattle. I know a lot of people working at Amazon. They hire really extremely smart people to go and work on this stuff. So you're probably not going to be as good as Amazon at personalization. And yet if you go and buy a printer on Amazon, the next thing they recommend is you buy another printer. Right. They're, they're the best in the world at this stuff and if you buy a toilet seat cover they think you are collecting toilet seats if that's the level that amazon is at after doing being investing in this like crazy how good is the personalization effort that you're going to do be and so instead so, so what, what do you do instead well why don't you start with instead of doing personalized content why do you try to create some good content I, I joke about this all the time too like how, how many companies do you subscribe to their email list where you're excited to get their email every time they send it to you the only people on email lists are there because it's, it's the momentum of unsubscribing is too hard and they just basically keep it on the list and they don't open it. Open rates on company-based emails drop down to about 10%, something as low as 8%. They never seem to drop below 8%. There's always somebody who's going to open them. But people, there's, there's no value there. People hate this stuff. And so what do we do? We try to optimize by changing the subject lines and changing the, the sent line. If you talk to like content marketers, they'll say, oh, the, the number one driver of open rates is the subject line. Well, that is true at the micro level, but on the macro level, if you have an awesome subject line, your open rate might jump from 10% to 12%. But meanwhile, a newsletter, emails that you send out to your people listening to your to read it, listening to your podcast, probably have open rates of 70%. Why? Because not because your subject line is awesome, but because you're sending out good content that they want to read. And so, if you're a company, before you start worrying about personalizing your emails, why don't you just try to create a good email? And if you can create a good email every week, you should send that to everybody, not, to, not, not a personalized email to anybody. And if you can send out two good emails a week, well, instead of sending out two personalized emails to half of your base, just send out two great emails to your whole list twice a week. People will be very happy to read a great email. They're not going to be happy to read a personalized crappy email.
0: So before we go into like the basics and what are the basics for you and how to do it, because I'm really curious to, to know how you would do it step-by-step, like step, especially a business that tends to focus on the BS. Making them go back to basics and convince them to do so. But before that, I just want to come back to your experience. So, you've been chief marketing officers in a few companies, VP of marketing at Expedia. You obviously have experience with big companies, and you're not saying that from the perspective of a, a freelancer only started yesterday, right? So, you have a lot of experience there. Can you, like, why do you take such a stand where you? doing this type of BS when you were in these companies and realized on the late that actually you had to do things differently? Were you doing marketing, like effective marketing from the start and you were just baffled by all of the other companies doing it differently? What's the, the story
1: behind this fight that you have? Yeah, so I went to business school at, at UPenn, at Wharton School. And when I was there, I trained under some very, very smart professors doing some very, very cool stuff in marketing. And I came out of business school really excited to do the stuff that they taught me. I started my career post-business school at McKinsey and I was traveling the world helping out companies and I was just pumped basically like, hey, I can go in and help these guys do customer-based valuation so much better than they're doing right now. But then I'd walk into these companies and the problem wasn't that they weren't doing this stuff well. The problem was they weren't doing good stuff at all. It wasn't a matter of like improving their, their customer lifetime value models. They just didn't have customer lifetime value models. And so I spent a lot of my time at McKinsey charging ridiculously high fees to these companies to get basic stuff set up. One of my favorite stories, I was doing a, uh, a churn reduction program on prepaid wireless plans. So this is like, you don't even know when the person cancels. They just stop using the phone. And then if they haven't used the phone for one day, if they churned? Or what if they haven't used it for a week? At what point do you, know, do you think that they've actually stopped using it? So you're trying to build these models to predict when the person is going to churn. And if you wait too long, they're totally gone, and you can't get them back. And if you go too early, then you're subsidizing them for people that wouldn't have churned anyway. But we'd build these models out. It was, we were working across six different countries. And we'd, we'd build the models out, then we'd create programs for churn reduction, and then we'd roll those programs out, and we'd test them to see what would work and what didn't. And we finally found a model that worked. It took us a long time, almost a year project. We finally found uh, a program that consistently worked, in a few different countries. We started rolling it out across all their country network. And it was working everywhere except for one country. We couldn't get it to work there. We kept trying to change things and modify things. We were like, looking is the culture of that country different? Like, what's going on? And finally, I sent my analyst to the country and said, hey, I want you to work your way through the whole thing from the beginning to the end to figure out, like, why this thing isn't working at this country. And he spent a ton of time looking at the model, figuring out if there's any problems with the model, working with, like, Understanding the customer base, see if they're significantly different than the customer base, segmenting the customer base, see if it was working with some segments and not others, and it wasn't working with anybody. And eventually, after a couple of weeks of like working through the system, he figured out that their machine that sent out the SMSs wasn't plugged in, wasn't working. They weren't sending the messages out. They, their, their system was telling them the message was going out, but they weren't actually going out to any people. Like, we were charging half a million dollars a month to these, this, this company, and they, they hadn't plugged their machine in. And, and so... Those types of things happen all the time, and the challenge isn't like, how do we build a more sophisticated model? The challenge is like, let's make sure our, our our computers are plugged in. And so I left McKinsey to go to Expedia to kind of do this in-house, and again, it was the same challenges. It was so easy to get distracted by advanced segmentation stuff, meanwhile, we were sending out emails to drive attribution rather than to actually drive performance. And so a lot of it was like how do you deal with the incentives within this big company to make sure that we're doing the right thing rather than trying to figure out what the right thing is. When I got to a place from mom, I was lucky enough to be at a company where everything was broken. The basic foundation of the company is effective it's a company that helps you find senior housing, senior housing referral service. So it's called Expedia for Senior Housing. And they had the, if you understand marketplaces at all, they had the the marketplace set up. So they had more inventory, more properties, senior housing communities than anybody else. And once that happens in a marketplace, it's really hard to beat you. But they were doing everything else wrong. They, they were less the Expedia for senior housing and more the Craigslist of senior housing. There was just so much to do that we had to, we had to focus on the basics because the basics weren't there. And it made me learn how many basic things there were in order to get something to work and how hard execution was and how when you fix one thing, something else breaks. And by the time I left a place for mom, I started helping out other private equity backed companies in that kind of like 20 to $200 million revenue range and began to see the same parallels everywhere I went, whether the company was like a marketplace for lawyers or a software tool for urgent care clinics or a enterprise solution for security. They all had the same issues where they weren't answering the phone and we had to go and find a way to help these companies answer the phone right super
0: curious to know so those those basics you know as you said from your experience working for different industries different maturity level and all of that it seems like all of those companies struggle with the same stuff and they they don't have the same basics in place so let's take the scenario of When you joined XPDF for senior uh, homes, as you mentioned, that where everything was broken, right? And let's take this scenario and let's talk about the steps you took to actually fix things because you actually turned things around quite drastically in this company.
1: So like, what is the first step that you took? What, what did you put in place that wasn't there before? Oh man, there's so, there's so many things. I actually, the number one problem when I was there was there was one guy doing marketing and he was doing it terribly. Uh, and so there there was lots of opportunity around marketing, but the bigger, it's interesting when like you think about that, there's like nobody thinking about marketing, but that wasn't our biggest problem. Our biggest problem was our sales organization where at the time we had 450 advisors who were turning over at 80% per year. Our reviews on Glassdoor were one-star reviews consistently across the board. It it was just a mess of a sales team. The compensation structure was 100% commission. So could you imagine going out to a good salesperson and saying, hey, I want you to come leave your company where you're making good money, come and work for our company where it's a new industry you've never been in before. Our current salespeople hate the job. They're giving one-star reviews on Glassdoor and and, and uh, are leaving every year. Trust us, come and work for us. Well, no good salesperson was coming to us at all we were left with the people. We had, we had some good salespeople, but we tended to find like, the, the good salespeople we had. We got just almost by pure luck. Oftentimes, it was um, uh, stay-at-home moms who were trying to get back into the workforce and were having a hard time getting jobs. Well, we would hire them because we hired everybody. And some of those people were very, very good. And so we had some very great salespeople. But we also had people who would sign up to, to work for us. We'd send them their computer, and then they would disappear. And they'd basically <laughs> using us as to steal computers. It, it, it was just a disaster. So we, we had to go and totally change the the compensation system, I had to totally change the, the, even the workflow. So those, those salespeople were doing everything from call screening, they were working with families, they were doing property sign-up, they were doing property management, they were doing hospital uh, relationship management, and they were doing collections. Like, you ask one person to do all those jobs, and you're not going to find a good person. And so we had to split that job into six different jobs, create a collections department, create a, call, a centralized call center, create a property management team, create a property sign-up team, create a hospital relationships team so that we can focus our salespeople on actually doing the sales job of like working with families. And you try to do all that while the ship is flying. Like if you built this business from scratch, that's one thing, but like we were an operating business and we were spitting out $40 million in revenue a year. We couldn't afford to like stop that. And so you try to change things as you go along and all the changes you're making are for the better. Now we made some mistakes, but in general, we were like on the right track. But even when you're doing the right thing, change hurts you in the short term. And so we were living with this world of we couldn't change too much because if we did, our company would go bankrupt and there would, no, would be no future. But if you didn't change fast enough, well, there'd also be no future. And so balancing all that together and like, it felt like a little bit like we were that little kid in the Dutch dike where you're putting your finger in to stop the water from coming out and it would spit out someplace else. And it was a solid year and a half of struggling to make that work and making sure we had payroll every two weeks.
0: So if you had to advise people listening right now, uh, who might be struggling in their marketing, right? They might be in a company that struggle as well, not generating enough revenue. From your experience, then, apart from, like, as you said, fixing the sales team like you've done for, for this company, what are the basics, marketing-wise, that they need to set up to have in place that you, from your experience, don't really see?
1: What are the tough yeah, so, things? So That's so, uh, actually what I do a lot right now. I help out a company called Warburg Pincus, which is a private equity firm. They have hundreds of companies in their portfolio, and I help a lot of those companies get their marketing stuff set up. And I like to tell them that it's kind of a three or four step process where the first step is stop thinking about marketing as a cost center and start thinking as a profit center. Which means you need to tie the co- your marketing costs into revenue. You need to know that every dollar I'm spending, I'm making back more than a dollar with some sort of way to tie those two together. And sometimes it's never easy, but sometimes it's relatively easier than others. So your money you spend on paid search You should get really, really good at knowing that this click I get on this ad turns into this many visits to my website, this many leads, that many leads turns into this many uh, sales qualified leads, which turns into this many opportunities, which turns into this many sales, and the average sale value of this is X. Measuring that full funnel with some sort of attribution methodology is extremely important. And you want to do the equivalent of that across all of your marketing spend. The higher up in the funnel you go, the harder that is. But it's never impossible. And you should at least have a what you believe. If you're going to spend $100,000 to do rebranding, you better believe in your heart of hearts that's going to generate more than $100,000 in value, discounted cash flow basis, discounted cash flow basis. And if you don't believe that, then you should not be spending that $100,000 in branding. Anything lower in the funnel than branding, you should have a much better idea of what that, those numbers are so you get confidence around all of your spend. When when I got to General Assembly, they were spending $100,000 a month on Snapchat filters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I I, I said, said, does that work? Do we have any idea that this this is adding any value? And they said, well, we don't know. That's why we're only spending $100,000 a month on it. (laughs) And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not the way, you can't do that. You want to know if it doesn't work, we should spend zero. And if it does work, we should be spending a million or $10 million a month. We should be capping it out as much as possible. But this, I don't know if it works, therefore, I'm just going to throw a little bit of money at it, is never, never, never a good idea. So you need to find some way to like have an estimate or a belief, anyway, of what value something is providing on per dollar spent. And then scale the ones that are and, and, and reduce the ones that aren't.
0: Okay, so excellent. Thanks so much for, for going through this first step. Uh, you mentioned paid search. Paid search typically is the kind of easiest to type back to revenue and ROI, right? Because Google, like Google AdWords and analytics and all of that gives you a lot of good attribution metrics so you can see how many people search for this keyword, how many people click on your landing page, how many people converted, et cetera, et cetera. So it sounds like even with Excel, just an Excel spreadsheet and napkin calculation, you can get an overall view of you put $1 into your AdWords, you get $2.5 back or whatever, $10 back, right? It sounds like... Easy enough, right? But then when you start switching to channels that are a bit more complex, maybe content is another one. Maybe event uh, is another one. Maybe, as you said, brand, like this type of higher purpose campaigns. How do you advise those companies to tie, to tie everything together? Like what's your process for
1: that? Yeah, so, so I, I, you, you made a good point. Start with the easiest stuff. So make sure your paid search is doing it. Most companies I talk to are not doing that well. They, Or if they're doing it at all, they're doing it at the gross level where they have like a line on their spreadsheet that's called paid search, and they do it for the overall channel of paid search, and it with no level of granularity. And You really want to get to the point where you're, you're not doing it at the keyword level because you're not going to be able to learn anything at that level of granularity, but there's somewhere between that the whole channel of paid search and the level of an individual keyword, and you need to be able to Tie those together and figure out hey, I'm spending a dollar to make $10 here and I'm spending a dollar to make 50 cents here, and I can scale up the $10 and scale down the 50 cents. You got to get that right. And yes, it's easier than the other stuff, but man, companies struggle with it. So get that going first. Then once you have that, you can kind of work your way up the funnel. So the second part of the second type of leads that you get are leads that are, are leads or customers where you get their email address, but they don't buy. They don't turn into a lead. Like maybe you're a B2B company and you have a white paper and they download the white paper. You're basically creating like awareness in the category without, uh, an, but, you're, but you're, not, you're not driving an immediate purchase. At General Assembly, we, we had a guide for how to get a job in a startup. Well, we made no money on that. We got an email address. So now you need to figure out your email attribution programs where I collect an email address. What's it cost to me for that email address? Buy marketing channel. What activities am I doing to that email over what period of time? And what percentage of those emails over what periods of time turn into leads, which then turn into revenue down the line? And it's, just, it's further back in the funnel. It takes you longer to measure that. Your feedback cycle is a lot slower. But you have early stuff early on in the funnel that you can at least figure, start to figure stuff out. And you want to create ways to make that attribution happen. So if you have that white paper, you could gate it or not gate it. Well, the nice thing about gating it the thing about not gating it is that you expose it to more people and you create more brand impact. But by gating it, you collect the email address, which just helps you a ton on your attribution down the line. And even if you give up gating it later on, you can start measuring an impact per view of the, the white paper so that you can quantify that value down the line. And so I'm a big believer of doing things, uh, the example I gave of the the red cross, you're not going to do all your retargeting where half the ads are going to be red cross, you're throwing away half your budget. But doing it once or twice to get the the measure of the incremental lift of the retargeting is really, really important so that going forward, I can take away the red cross ads, but still assume that 90% of those clicks are are invalid.
0: Okay, so paid search, we talked about email. So let me just rephrase it in my own words, making sure I understand, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, please. So we collect, let's say, 1,000 email addresses from white paper, Using a CRM of some sort of way to track those emails, like let's say we send them a campaign of 10 emails over the course of six months. And after six months, we realize that 20 of those 1,000 actually turn into customers, right? And so what we do here is we look back at the cost it it took us to create this white paper, potentially. And then we also look at the value that this customer brought, and then we basically look at, okay, from 1,000 we got 20, this is the return on investment. Is that roughly what you're talking about?
1: That's exactly right. Okay. And it takes time, right? Because you collect the email address now. They're not ready to buy now. So it takes you some time before they turn from an email into a lead. And so you don't have the fast iterative feedback cycle you might have on paid search, even if you use paid search to generate leads or paid search to generate revenue. It just, it takes longer, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And you need to take the early funnel metrics, which is just, hey, collecting the email address. Do they open the second email you send them? Like anything early on the funnel that creates like a, an estimate of what that's going to be down the line.
0: So then we're going to get, we are getting to more and more like blurry territory. So let's say we receive, like we get a lot of referrals. Let's say we get a lot of word, word of mouth. And typically what would happen here is you might have a lot of direct traffic coming to your site. You don't know where the fuck they're coming from. They land on your homepage, they convert.
1: How do you then tie that back? I call that every channel has a multiplier. It's either a synergy or a cannibalizing. And so For retargeting, that cannibalization rate is again, could be as high as 90%. Branded paid search is another example of a really high cannibalization rate. If you put your brand up, if you advertise on Google on a branded search, like name of like everybodyhatesmarketers.com, and you advertise on Google for on the keyword everybody hates marketers, your paid search is gonna come at the top, and the next thing should probably be your your organic SEO. People will click on your ad, but a lot of those people would have clicked on your SEO ad anyway. So high cannibalization rate. Other channels have a really high synergy rate. The best example of that is television. You run a TV ad. No matter how good you are at attributing the impact of that television ad, it's going to have impact beyond what you're able to measure. At A Place for Mom, we did a lot of television. We had, we had Joan London as our celebrity spokesperson. And we did everything we could to attribute that television spots. And we did like, pretty direct response marketing TV spots. Like, hi, I'm Joan London. You should get senior housing. Call now to get some senior housing help. We put a phone number on the, on the TV spots. Anytime anyone called that phone number, we could attribute that back to the TV spot. We had a dedicated phone number for every TV spot we ran. We could tie those together. It was really obvious. But that was only a small percentage of the impact that came from TV. But the bigger impact came from a branded lift we saw in our brand traffic the, day, the same day the phone, number, phone calls came in. We saw like a super high correlation between lift and branded traffic and number of phone calls on any given day. But it doesn't stop there. We also saw long-term brand lift from our television spots, because it was really only brand advertising we were doing, only top-of-the-funnel stuff we were doing. So any brand traffic lift, we knew where, that, that was, that's where it was coming from. And so over the course of the next 12 months, we got as much lift in brand traffic as we did on the day the TV spot ran. And so now we're looking at three effects. We have like the, the effect from the, phone, from the phone calls, the effect from brand traffic lift on the day you ran the, fo- the ad and the same day you got the phone calls, and you got the brand traffic lift over the next 12 months. But we're not done there. Now we have the fact that like, Google has made it very, very clear they love branded companies because there's a brand trust for when, you, when you're a brand versus like some fly-by-night organization. So our unbranded SEO started lifting during the same time period. Now, was that because we had an SEO team that was doing all sorts of great work? And absolutely, yes. But the other impact of it was that our television was lifting our unbranded SEO. Our click-through rate on our paid search was going up. Again, if, if, you, if you're looking at paid search and you look at you search for hotels in Seattle and one ad is from Expedia and the other ad is from Hotels-4-U.com, like which one are you going to click on? Well, you're going to click on the, the, the brand. And so as our brand grew, our click-through rate on paid search went up, which our quality score went up and our cost per click went down. But it doesn't even stop there. Recruiting employees got easier. Signing up supply got easier. Partnerships got easier. And so the impact of television was, one, the the directly measured phone calls, two, the indirectly measured brand traffic on the same day, three, the indirectly measured brand traffic over the next year, four, the lift and our other marketing channels, and five, like non-marketing impact, like HR impact and, and, and regulatory impact. And so the synergistic effect of our television was at least three or four X what we could actually measure at the time. And so once you kind of get this synergistic or cannibalization rate you can apply that to all of your marketing. So when I advertise on, when I do remarketing, I better be getting at least a 10 to 1 return that I'm measuring, because I'm not, then I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm underwater. I'm, it's 90, if 90% of that traffic is cannibalized, then I need to get at least a 10 to 1 return. On, on television, though, if I'm getting a, a 5x synergy, if I'm getting a 20% or, or a negative 80% return on, on, on television, I'm actually breaking even. So a negative 80% return on measured television impact was the same as a 10x return on retargeting.
0: Okay, so thanks for this thorough answer. Let me deconstruct it. And by the way, I think you're the first person I'm talking to who makes the word synergy sexy again, so thank you. Um, (laughs) So so let's say we spent um, one million euros or dollars, let's say dollars, one million dollars on a TV ad. And the direct return I got on the day the ad runs is only $200,000 which is like a negative, uh, uh, like minus 80% ROI, because you've done your research and like over the course of a year, you know that the lift is basically five times. So whenever um, the direct response you get from the ad, actually the actual maximum impact is five times higher than that through all of the snowball effect that you had. You basically have $200,000 multiplied by five equal
1: one million. So you go back to your original investments. It's that, that's what you're describing. That's exactly right, you, and, and th- so that you, you may or may not want to do that. Right? If you're, you're if you're spending a million dollars now to make a million dollars over the next twelve months, like that's probably not good enough. But if you are making
0: five hundred thousand instead of two hundred thousand, and you know for sure that the lift is five x, then you're like, fuck, that's you know, that's good return. So how did you actually? And then we can move on to step two of your process. But for those very high high level kind of ad stuff, how did you compare? Because you need to have a before and after, right? So you just basically say. Before we run the ad, this is the status quo. After we run the ad, this is what happens. And nothing else changes?
1: Yeah. So it gets, it's hard, right? It's not, not obvious. It's not easy. And the bigger your brand, the harder it gets. We were small enough when we started television that every time we rent our TV spots, we saw a short-term brand pump that, that happened on the same day. I guarantee when Coke runs a TV spot, they don't see any lift in sales the day they run the TV spot. And it's not because the TV spots aren't working for Coke and they're working for us. The the reason is that Coke's base level of brand, base level of purchase levels, was just so much higher that the noise overcame any signal from their TV spot. And so the solution is to, at least initially, is to have a high enough spend and a low enough base that you can actually measure the impact. And so uh, TripAdvisor did this. So did, um, I want to say, Zillow. Where to test their television spots, instead of running national TV spots, which would be far more cost efficient, they did intense TV buys in one specific city. And so they saturated a market to see whether or not they could see a lift in traffic in a specific city by spending intensely on TV and then not spending anywhere else. And so from that, they can kind of measure all those indirect effects and see what's happening. We did something similar at General Assembly, where we did intense subway buys in different cities. And so we could see. What lift we're getting from the the, the the cities where we're buying subways versus uh, subway ads versus cities that we're not. Yeah, I like that. So that you
0: you really target a local market, meaning that you don't influence, you're likely to influence any other market around. And you can really do some sort of a A-B test in a sense, right? Like local market A gets the ad, local market B doesn't. Same population, roughly same type of people. We get we see fifty percent more branded search compared to this one after the the ad is running, so you basically right. do a, tra, a a real life a b test as much as as you can measure
1: yeah and again it's it's not going to be perfect at all no no no, no, no scientist is going to love what you're what you're putting together but, but it's <laughs> it's a it's enough that you can get like a a rough idea of what that s- synergistic effect is and you still want some sort of attribution stuff so like at general assembly we still ask people when they come in the door like how did you hear about us? And we still put a special code on the, our, our URL on the subway ads. And so we have some sort of like measured attribution from the subway ads, but then we see what the overall lift in the market is for like, okay, the subway ads said that they, they, they made us $20,000 in sales, but the overall market when we ran the subway ads lifted by 100,000. So we know the mul- we, our estimate of the multiplier effect on what we can measure versus what's actually happening is a 5X on the subway ads. And then once you have what that multiplier is in the cities that you run those tests in, you're not going to run those tests everywhere. You're not going to continue to run regional television and pay a premium for that. You just kind of have to like, close your eyes and cross your fingers and join hands and say, hey, we believe the synergistic effect on how we're measuring television is 5x. So let's go out and spend television all over the place, measure what we can measure, and believe that the impact is going to be 5x greater than whatever we're measuring.
0: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Makes me think a lot, a lot of about a lot of stuff. So I hope that's helpful for you if you're listening to this episode right now. Uh, so that's kind of when you said when you came back to talking to those startups that you advise. This is kind of step one. We are not going to have time to talk about so many steps, but like the, <laughs> the depth you're going into is super interesting, and I want to keep going for a few uh, minutes anyway. So once they know roughly that. Like marketing is now a profit center. They understand whatever money they spend, they get that out. Once they have
1: that basis sorted, what steps two? What's what do you like to do after that? So step two is is now that you have all of these marketing channels and you know what your return is on these marketing channels, you're gonna find some marketing channels where you're spending a dollar to make fifty cents. And so the first step is stop doing that. It's just turn off all these channels where you're spending a dollar to make 10 cents. Um, you're, turn off your Snapchat filters, like turn off, like the, like you said at the beginning, your egotistical channels, right? Like the, there's a lot of times marketing is dollars are being spent with your ego. Like, um, you, you really like the local sports team. So you buy the Jersey sponsorship on the sports team, turn all that shit off. Th- then step two, uh, 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 step, step B, I guess of step two is find the marketing channels where you're spending a dollar to make $10 and, and on those channels, just start spending more accelerate take all that money from the ones that aren't working and ex- throw them into the ones that are and see how much you can accelerate those channels before you start hitting diminishing returns it's not uncommon uh when i help with these Warburg companies where i find this marketing channel where they're spending oftentimes it's paid search you are part of paid search where they're spending a dollar to make ten dollars and the answer becomes like let's instead of spend a dollar let's spend a hundred dollars and make ten thousand dollars and we just push 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 and we find ways to push more and like tricks to kind of push those channels. Finding a marketing channel that works really effectively is really, really hard. You probably have some right now that you're not measuring. As soon as you find them, just don't, don't let up, just push them as hard as you can. Uh, and it's the easiest thing to do because you're not trying to figure anything out at that point. You're just like doing what already works. And, it, chances are then once you squeeze as
0: much as possible from those channels, you might reach a you might reach a local maxima, you might, re- might reach a plateau, right? So it's not like this magical beans where you find out that one channel does generates ten x the investment, uh, the initial investment, and then you can just multiply that by the one million and you get you'll be a billionaire, right? There is always a limit. So how do you handle that? And I don't want to derail you too, uh derail you too much from the step uh, that you're taking, but. Do you see that happens a lot, or do you see that usually there's a lot the plateau
1: is really high and you have a lot of ways to improve? No, so there's always diminishing returns. There there has to be, right? Like as you said, if if no company can grow faster than the growth rate of the world for very long before eventually they become if they, if, they, if they couldn't, they'd eventually take over the entire world, right? Like, and the growth rate of the company would become the growth rate of the world, right? So you, ha, you have to, diminishing returns is a fact of the universe. The question is, when is that diminishing returns and when is it going to happen? It often, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure exactly why this universal rule is true, but I see the square root rule all the time, where once you get to a certain size in a given marketing channel, you can always double your spend. And if you do, your revenue will go up by the square root of two. So every doubling of span makes your, like a, what's 1.6 or whatever that number is, whatever the square root of 2 is, 1.4, 1.5. I, sh- I should know my math better. But, but that square root of 2 rule happens again and again and again. Um, you, you multiply your, increase your spend by, by 10%, your sales will go up by the, the, the square root of 1.1. So that's kind of like your, your rough kind of diminishing returns curve. Sometimes you're lucky and you're early enough in the funnel that, that, that you don't hit those diminishing returns for a while yet. Like diminishing returns are probably there, but you can't see them. But once you get to any sort of reasonable scale, that's often what happens. Because your diminishing returns are always going to be there, you want to, but you want to push them as far as you can. And the, and the bigger your percent, so if you're making a 100x return on a channel, man, you can have lots of diminishing returns before you run into trouble. If you have like a 10% return on a channel, you're probably pretty close to the boundary of diminishing returns, given what you're doing right now. Which gets me to step three, which is like, do what you're doing better. Once you find the places where there's like gold in them, their hills, get better pans and get better pickaxes and focus your attention on your big channels that have high ROI. And I know I keep going back to paid search, but it's, it's probably the easiest one to talk about. Paid search in general, people do it terribly. They can go back to the thing we talked about at the beginning. They chase shiny objects and they don't focus on the basics agencies are focused on spending your money not on being more effective the way agencies get more clients is that they have really good sales teams and really good customer service teams not really good marketing teams it's actually a struggle for agencies that are really good at marketing and i'm sure they get frustrated because if they get better at marketing they don't get more revenue they they need to get better at sales and better customer service if they want to grow their business and so paid search is just done terribly across the board i find we go in and we take these channels and just do them better it's improve your site speed and all of a sudden your SEO will get better because nobody's nobody's been looking at site speed. It's on paid search. It's making sure that your ad copy matches the keywords people are typing in, which is, again, very easy if you're selling red umbrellas in Austin. You just make sure your ad says red umbrellas in Austin. Now, again, most of the time people use creative ads and they don't do that. So it's fixing that first and making sure all your ads just repeat the same words the person types in. But then doing that at scale is really hard. So if, if you have 1,000 products in 1,000 cities with 1,000 colors, all of a sudden you're in t- millions of ad copy. Um, and that's, that's difficult to do. and Most companies aren't doing it. And so we do that next. Um, and when you start fixing these different marketing channels, as, soon as, they're, as long as they're scalable marketing channels, you're not wasting your time. One of my favorite stories, when I was a consultant, we were helping out a grocery store and helping them do, improve their operations. And they were stacking bananas. And... We, we, do, we, were just like, we were just like following these, these stackers around through the store, and watching what they're doing. And when, when they were stacking bananas, the, the, the system on stacking bananas was to go and create the, first bo- the bottom layer of the pyramid, and then do the second layer of the pyramid, third layer of the pyramid. They'd kind of work their way up to the top of the pyramid and make the stack, the, the pile of bananas. And we timed them doing it. And then we said, hey, let's try this. Instead of working your way around the do kind of like layer by layer of the pyramid. What if we just took one row of the pyramid and did it from the bottom all the way to the top of the pyramid? And then go to the next one, do the bottom of the top, and bottom of the top, and just work your way around. Instead of doing multiple circles to, to stack the bananas, you just kind of, you do one circle around one time by stacking all the way up to the top. And we found out that by doing that, it saved like two minutes on the stacking of bananas. Which again, if you're in one grocery store in one place, you probably don't care. You're paying your, your staff member minimum wage. Whether it takes like, 10 minutes to stack the bananas or 8 minutes to stack the bananas, you don't really care. But if you're a national grocery chain with thousands and thousands of stores, you take two minutes off the stacking of bananas across all the stores, all of a sudden you have saved $2 million a year. And so once you get things up to scale, small improvements can make a big, big difference. And so you find your biggest channels that are already effective and you focus on, you focus on making your improvements there on the margin. Um, and those marginal improvements all can have significant impact on your business. So how do you
0: prioritize such uh, improvements? So let's say we have like let's say five marketing channels that are ROI are right, positive working very well, and then underneath, as you say, there are multiple things you can optimize. How do you like to prioritize? Okay, this is the first thing we need to do. This is the second thing we're likely need to do, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. What do you look into?
1: So one is the scale. And so you focus on your bigger channels first. Second is your ROI. So you focus on the, the the valuable channels first. Third is the insights you already have from other places. So figuring out something new is really, really, really hard. Copying something that already works someplace else is, is comparably much, much, much easier. And so where, where you have like a toolkit of pl- things that you're not doing right and someone else is doing, someone else is, focus on the, that first because it's, it's a lot easier to, to have impact. Once you get to the top levels of performance... People look. What gets you there is very different and um, esoteric. By, by business, every business is different, and it's every every business is different in its own way. Um, Every industry is different in its own way, and it's hard to kind of take findings from one place to another. But the basics are the same everywhere. Like the idea of like, hey, call your customers back when they want to talk to you. is the same whether you're in travel or you're in car sales or you're in uh, education provider. Um, Everyone wants good customer service, and so if there Things you were doing badly that other people were doing well and had, had, had significant impact, fix that stuff first before you start thinking about, like, okay, what's the over-the-top thing we can do to really, really go to the next mile? And it's, it's, it's less sexy, it's less interesting, but man, it has a big impact.
0: Yeah, I mean, your CV uh, speaks for, it, for itself, right? You've done an amazing job for a lot of companies, so clearly what you're saying has, uh, has a lot of value for people listening right now. So you mentioned customer service as a basics. What are the basics do you feel like the foundations are not there uh, apart from that?
1: So figure out who your customers are that make you money and treat those customers really well. And what does treating them really well mean? It means meeting their needs and being convenient for them. Coke had a thing back, I don't know when it was, it was the 80s or so. They said, um, their, their, their mission was like, every, Coke should be within, every human should be within arm's reach of a Coke at all times. Like, that was their, like, their, their mission. My, my wife was actually climbing a mountain in Ethiopia. Um, this, hardly anybody was there. She didn't see anybody in the mountain all day long. It was her and, and her guide and, and, and the, the, her friend that she was hiking with. And they got to the top of this mountain in Ethiopia, and there was a guy at the top of the mountain selling Coke. He had climbed the mountain earlier that morning, and he was sitting at the top of the mountain with cokes for anyone who climbed to the top of the mountain that day. My my wife doesn't like coke, but you know what? She drank coke that day because coke had distribution. And so, if you can find a way to meet your customers, meet meet your customers where they are, make it easy for them, reduce transaction costs, make it more seamless. Should you have your product be self-service on the web, or should you have call center people they can call, or should they be able to do it via text? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Some customers want it one way, some want it the other way, some want it the other way. You want to make it. Easy for anybody to buy your product any way they want to buy it. That's that's the big thing. It's like how do you take out reduce friction and make things easier for people to give you their money.
0: What's your number one method to identify your most profitable customers or the ones that are like you know the 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 twenty percent that make up the eighty percent? What's the one method you like to use?
1: Yeah, so um, I don't want to go too far along that route because Byron Sharp has done a great job writing this book called How Brands Grow that. If you haven't read, if you're a marketer, you need to read that book. So much of having really valuable customers is having lots of customers. You go and acquire a whole bunch of customers. Some of them will be really good, and some of them will be bad. And the bad ones will go away, and the good ones will stay with you if you do a good job. And so the way to get more good customers is just to get more customers. The idea of like trying to target and find the, 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 the needle in the haystack, don't, don't do that. Just get a lot of haystacks, and you'll find a bunch. there'll be a bunch of needles in there. Now, once you have those really high valuable customers, you need to do stuff that makes it easy for your entire customer base to work with you and buy from you. When I, when I say you're good customers, I don't mean your top 20%. I mean your top 80%. Your bottom 20% are probably distracting you and getting in your way, but you need to make your service awesome for the 80%, not the 20%. If you focus on that 20%, you're often wasting your time in that your top 20% of customers love you already and they they, they, they aren't going to churn. They aren't they're almost by definition not going to churn. If they're high-churning customers, they're not your top customers. And so the top customers are the ones who are going to love you no matter what you do, and they're going to stick around. And investing in them is, is almost like retargeting a little bit because if you measure, you do a bunch of stuff to your good customers and your, your model says, oh, my good customers are still good. Well, that's true, but they probably would have stayed good even if you hadn't done anything for them. Instead, think about what your mass customers are doing. Make their lives easier. And it turns out, if you make the lives easier for your mass customers, your lives also get easier for your best customers. And they'll stick around, increase the chance of them sticking around just as much as, as the mass, only you're affecting a, a much larger, larger base.
0: But if you, if you only target, if you have a mass marketing strategy where you target a bunch of people who don't necessarily share the same demographics or psychographic, how, how do you make sure that the message sticks for them? How do you make sure that you have a marketing that is like sharp for every of other segment if you don't have a lot of cash? Wouldn't it be better to focus on those 20%? Uh,
1: you got to be really careful. I think demographic and psychographic targeting is also, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's one of the chapters of my book on BS marketing. You got to be really careful. If you want to sell tennis rackets, you could tar- try to target by demographic, but far better is to sell to people who play tennis. The uh, behavioral targeting is much more effective than demographical targeting Absolutely, and, it, and far more effective than psychographic targeting. And so by all means, like if you're selling tennis rackets, advertise in a tennis magazine, but be really wary of like, hey, our audience skews male and aggressive, therefore we're going to advertise in like a guns and ammo magazine because lots of men read that magazine. Well, maybe, but you're going to pay a huge p- premium CPM to go and and target those people and you'd be far better advertising a- at a far b- broader rate. So, I, I mean,
0: I personally would define psychographic, uh, to me, it encapsulates as well the behavioral stuff because their beliefs make you... But you okay, you're making a distinction between psychographic and behavioral stuff. So you wouldn't make a distinction between psychographic and the job they're hiring the product to do or the type of stuff that they would do that make them, like the one thing that make them together as a group, as you say, tennis racket, they play tennis. But then things get a bit trickier about, like, let's say you want to buy a car. Uh, it's not as, as easy to understand the behavioral thing behind it. Maybe... People tend to buy a car when they move a move house, for example, but we still that consider that to be psychographic so for you, there are two different
1: things the behavior and the psychographic yeah yeah absolutely because behavior is something you can see that they actually did that thing, and psychographic to me is like something that you're trying to infer based okay. on 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 something and man we're really bad at inferring stuff our, our, our false positive rates and our any small group we're trying to target with the uh, has really, really high false positives. Uh, so you just got to be really careful. Now, you can use that to rule out people. It's far more easy to rule out people than rule people in. So if you want to, if you have, it's much easier to figure out who isn't pregnant than it is to figure out who is. If you can get 10% better at figuring out who's pregnant and you say, okay, these are the people that are most likely to be pregnant, let's exclude them from our non pregnancy ads, that's far e- more easier to do than be like, okay, these are the people we think are pregnant, let's go and target them with pregnancy ads man, like you're, you're, uh, that, that second one doesn't work very well.
0: It's getting better and better. Uh, I want to keep pushing just a bit on this. So I know that the, the book you mentioned from like, uh, the How Brands Grow, and I know, if I'm not mistaken, I think Mark Ritson, Baron Sharp, is the author of How Brands Grow, right? Uh, Baron Sharp, he is. As you said. Byron
1: Sharp is yeah, and Mark and, and Byron get in fights all the time. Yes, exactly but, right. Uh, and the point but is... but I, I think they agree on eighty percent of stuff, but they fight about the twenty percent that stuff they disagree with.
0: So if you if you had to summarize this, uh, the different the two point of view is that Mark seems to be more about like select the right target market and go after them, while Byron is more about have a mass mass marketing strategy, and you will
1: have the right people in the mix. Is that it? Is that the difference between yeah, the two? I think so. I think. I'm like a kill for sale. I might get killed for I Like think Mark is probably a little more nuanced than By- Byron, but I think Byron basically says like, in in, in some ways he he has, he has figured he has a hammer and it's a really great hammer that no one else had before. And now he's hammering things with nails. And hey, ninety percent of the time he's right. Uh, and his hammer is doing great stuff. He, he he may have overcorrected a little bit. And and I think Mark is a little bit of the uh, hey providing nuance to, By- to, to Byron to be like hey maybe may, may, uh, sorry Brian maybe it's a little bit arguing that it goes too far in some cases which is probably true. I think the risk has becomes like when I used to teach swimming lessons to kids and when you try to teach a kid how to swim you get them to overcorrect because the, the natural tendency is to like drag your arm through the water so you get them to throw their arm way 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 out of the water. Now, if you're uh, if you're one of the best swimmers in the world your arms barely come out of the water but that's not how you teach kids. You teach them to throw their arms way way out of the water so that they get you overcorrect their natural tendencies. And I think marketers definitely need an overcorrection a lot of times.
0: Uh, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years?
1: To do the stuff that worked 20 or 50, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. I think, we're, again, we're so focused on what the next big thing is and we still haven't learned the lessons of what worked from 50 years ago.
0: So basically everything you mentioned before, right, in this episode. Um, what are the top three resources you'd recommend listeners? So it could be anything, books, podcasts, conferences, anything at all.
1: That's, that's tough. Like, for a long time people would ask me like what book do i need to read to become a cmo and the answer i always gave was like i don't know there's it doesn't doesn't exist i think how brands grow is a great great resource it's like a it's a correction to like a lot of the bs that's out there um when i was a vp at expedia i bought a copy of the book for my entire team i think his second book how brands grow part two is actually a better book in theory it's more about luxury goods and like international markets but in practice. Rather than just being about, here's all the things that are bad, he talks about, here's what you should do instead. And so I think it's a, it's a more readable, effective book for most marketers. I think you should be uh, subscribing to my newsletter. I talk about this stuff every week. It's a, a deep dive coverage of something that's happening in the news that ties back into what it really means for, 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 for marketers. And then I would do I read non-marketing stuff. I think a lot of the insights I get are from things that are not marketing specific that you can pull... That you can pull, you can pull stuff from that 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 are helpful to you. So instead of reading a another newsletter about content marketing and how you need to create a top ten list um, and here's how you trick people into filling out your emails and so on, um, r- read something like Stratechery, where, where Ben Thompson does a deep dive into um, uh, tech strategy, and you'll you'll be able to pull marketing insights out of that. Read, read Marginal Revolution by Tyler Cohen, where he talks, I don't even know exactly what he talks about, lots of different things every day that I, I pull insights from all the time. And I think reading non-marketing stuff is probably going to be more helpful than reading a lot of the marketing things.
0: I concur. Uh, yeah, and I would say, yeah again, if you're listening to this episode, do subscribe to the, to, to Ed's newsletter. Uh, a lot of wisdom there. I'm definitely going to read How Brands Grow. I, I haven't read it yet. And I'm sorry, I will, I promise. You've been super helpful. You shared a lot of stuff no one has ever talked about in this podcast. And I say that uh, with uh, entire uh, transparency and honesty. So thank you so much. I, I know that people listening got a lot of value out of what you just said. Uh, where can people connect with you, learn more from you?
1: Yeah, so hey, marketingbs.com is my website. Go, go ahead. You can send me emails on there. If you subscribe to my newsletter and just reply to a newsletter, I, I read everything I, that comes up, comes my way. I actually just purchased a new company a couple of weeks ago called Ipassexam.com which is a, a, to, a resources for passing practice tests for Google Analytics and Google AdWords certification, Facebook Display Ad certification. So if you're planning to take any of those tests, uh, feel free to use my uh, my new website. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Nice. Uh, once again, Ed, thanks so much for your time. Learned a lot from you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks.
0: That's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. So thank you so much once again and over. See you on the other side.